0: We have a great subscription offer for all our listeners. Subscribe to our digital edition for 12 months for just $24.99. That's six issues of our award-winning magazine delivered to your inbox for less than $4.20 an issue. Only $24.99 for a full year. So don't wait. To subscribe, go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash talking Australia. That's australiangeographic.com.au forward slash talking Australia.
1: Hi, I'm Liz Guinness and this is Talking Australia, a podcast by Australian Geographic. Today, I'm joined by Jimmy Ashby. In 2018, Jimmy set off on an adventure that even the most passionate cyclist would find overwhelming. At just 18 years of age, he hopped on his trusty bike and cycled right around the world. The trip took 13 months and helped him discover the true Jimmy. I'm really excited to be joined by Jimmy today on this episode of Talking Australia. Thank you for joining us, Jimmy.
2: Thanks for having me. I'm stoked to be here. Yeah,
1: we're stoked to have you after such a huge trip over 390 plus days. Is that right?
2: Absolutely. So, yeah, I circled around the world, the actual world. So, I spent 13 months or 393 days. Cycling over 39,000 kilometers across 32 countries, four continents, and all as an 18, 19-year-old. So I was at the ripe age, still a teenager, and I saw the world through the bubble of a bike, the raw cultures, the religions, the love, kindness, and compassion of the people. I got to see the world for what it truly is.
1: That's incredible. That's an incredible journey to take as an 18-year-old and I want to take our listeners on that journey with us as we talk about it. But before we launch into that, maybe we need to go maybe backpedal a bit and have a look at what your childhood looked like and how you got to be there in the first place.
2: Absolutely. So, I've spent my whole life in South Australia living down in McLaren Vale.
1: So that's wine region, isn't wine it? Wine region,
2: absolutely. Now yep. I'm 18, I love the wines. <laughs> You're enjoying the wine. But it's right on the doorstep of where the tour down under is, you know, Willunga Hill. The roads are built for cycling. And a lot of people look at my upbringing and they say, Jimmy, you were born for this. Cycling is in your blood. So my beautiful mum and my dad, they met in Tasmania. They were both cycling around and happened to camp in the same place and then fell in love. And, you know, I was brought up with stories of him cycling Scandinavia through Vietnam and this adventure. It was always uh, there as I was becoming a teenager. And one day, Dad and I went to the shed and I looked at this beautiful cherry red bike. And I said, Dad, let's try and go somewhere. I want to make my own stories.
1: Was that, sorry to interrupt, but was that his bike or? Yeah, Yeah, an
2: old bike beaten up. Um, and we loaded it up with panniers with too much gear and went down to Kangaroo Island and spent a week going around and I just loved it. Mm-hmm. And I found a love for the adventure the outdoors and through my school at Westminster, such an incredible outdoor ed program, really developed my love for the climbing, the bushwalking. And it got to the point when, when I was 16, just before year 12 started, again, I packed up my bike. I needed a break before the studies and I went to Tasmania for two weeks on my own. And then when year 12 finished, I went to New Zealand. Instead of going off to schoolies and partying, within 12 hours of having my certificate, I was on a plane and getting very cold for a month around the South Island of New Zealand. So cycling, is in my blood. It's what I love to do. And the adventure, I love seeing uh, where I can go and how I can push myself.
1: Mm. How do your parents, how did, when you were younger, how did they feel about you heading off on your own?
2: Well, it was a bit of... Uh, they couldn't say no because they were doing it. <laughs> they you a know? precedent. Absolutely. And I don't think I could do what I do without my mum and dad. You know, they're incredibly supportive parents and they're cyclists themselves. Mm. They go on these solo trips. They do the big month-long rides and I can phone them up and they know what I'm going through. They know the hardships and they know what to say. And because mm. of that, they're, they're the best support crew I could ever have and I owe so much to mum and dad.
1: So... How then did they respond when you decided you wanted to cycle around the world? How did that come to be?
2: Well, they were silent for a bit, Um, (laughs) but it comes back to, you know, they were doing it and they knew that I developed the funds, the courage, the motivation to do it, and I was going to do it. And I guess their view was, well, let's back him. We believe in him. We're going to give him every bit of support. And I know it wasn't easy for him. It wasn't a smooth sailing year, but without them... Again, I don't think I could have done the year I did, been in the places or fought the hardships that I did have.
1: Yeah. So how? I'm kind of interested. I'm always interested when people take on these big adventures and are gone for months or years, thinking about how you fund something like that as well. How does that come to be?
2: So I was pretty fortunate that straight out of school, I was re-employed with Westminster School on a year-long contract essentially in the outdoor ed program so working as a bushwalk rock climbing kayaking instructor that sounds great oh i just get paid to play outdoors yeah, it's pretty it sounds fun. fantastic. and develop the funds you know i was living at home i wasn't spending much money and i got to the point where after a year of working i had money i had a bike and i said well i had a dream what could i do <laughs> yeah and there's the world snowballed into something pretty big and pretty scary pretty fast.
1: Yeah. Um, So for those of you who don't know about your journey, you started out in Adelaide and then you headed up the east coast of Australia?
2: Yeah. So I began in Adelaide of April of 2018, Mm -hmm. just an 18 year old young boy and went across to Melbourne, to Canberra, Sydney, and up to the Gold Coast.
1: And I imagine you would have stopped at the most easternmost point of Australia, Byron Bay.
2: Absolutely. Beautiful beaches.
1: And then you jumped across the ditch.
2: Yes. I hopped on a plane and went to the South Island of New Zealand again into Queenstown and went south to north up to Auckland. Again, got very cold and wet.
1: (laughs) Something about you and New Zealand.
2: Yeah. I think it's just always going to rain when I'm there. It's the way it is.
1: (laughs) Can I ask you a question? I always find if you're starting out on an adventure um, and it's a, you know, it's a cliche, something that people say all the time, but the first step is always the hardest. How did you feel about leaving home?
2: Oh, absolutely. You know, I left Adelaide and it was quite daunting. See, Mm -hmm. suddenly I'd left every bit of comfort, friend, family, thing I loved behind, not knowing that it wouldn't be until 13 months later till I'd see them again. And there's this term, the front door mile, which I believe is the hardest bit of any journey, anything you do going for a run or an assignment. And it's that first step. So building up the courage, the determination, the funds. To take it on. And once you're past that step, well, it starts to snowball into something quite big and scary fast. And for me, that first three thousand kilometers from Adelaide to the Gold Coast was my front door mile. Mm. I knew it wasn't gonna be easy. I was having panic attacks quite often. Uh as the sun was setting, I'd be freaking out about two things. One, I'm not sure where I was gonna sleep that night. Yeah, that's confronting. And two <laughs> What had I got myself into? Mm. You know, here I am, an 18-year-old boy, 1,000, 2,000 kilometers into this 30,000, 40,000 kilometer bike ride. Um, It was incredibly daunting. But once I got to the Gold Coast and I got over that front door mile and I flew to New Zealand, well, the ball started to roll and it started to happen and I found my stride or my pedal stroke and I found a love for the road, the simple life of eat, sleep and ride.
1: Sounds idyllic to me, but I'm sure for a lot of people it would be, uh, feel like a a very solitary and lonely thing to do. Did you find that?
2: It is. It's very solo, but I'm a very solo person. You know, I'm my best friend. I love getting lost in thoughts, listening to music or podcasts Mm -hmm. and just cruising along. And I think that's where the greatest lessons are learned when you're on your own. You know, it's up to you. You have those thoughts and where your mind wanders is pretty incredible. Going through school, growing up, I loved my own time. And I often think that the true Jimmy is when I'm on my bike. Mm-hmm. See, cycling is the thing I love the most and what I'm most passionate and brings me the, the level of happiness. And the people that cycle with me, well, they get to see the true Jimmy. And it's that uh, bubble that I get myself into of, well, ride, sleep, eat and just be happy.
1: Mm. And for, I'm sure for a lot of people that being happy is an incredibly elusive state. So for someone to find it at 18, uh, is remarkable. Um, are you generally a happy person anyway, or is this, did you, did you do other things before and think that's not going to work for me and this one is?
2: Well, absolutely. You know, through school, I wouldn't say I was a happy person, you know, look at the year I've just done. It's the complete opposite of school. Mm. You know, you're sat in a classroom for eight hours a day, surrounded by people, doing things that I probably didn't want to do to then just ditch everything and go live off my bike. You know, I think we all have something that we love and we're passionate about and brings us happiness. It's just a matter of finding what that was. And for me, it's, it's riding a bike, mm-hmm. something so simple and beautiful.
1: Flashback. For me, it's a flashback that riding a bike is a flashback to childhood where you're carefree and the wind's in your hair and there are no worries.
2: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah.
1: After New Zealand, you flew over to the west coast of america yeah Yeah?
2: correct so i got very wet at the north island new zealand packed up my box and landed in san francisco and i unpacked it to still wet shoes Mm. and i put them on and essentially headed straight out up the west coast into oregon and then the rocky mountains all the way to colorado and then straight across the guts kansas missouri Virginia to Washington, D.C., and the East Coast.
1: So, you really got to see the vast spread that is America and all the different types of Americans there are oh, along the absolutely.
2: way. Oh, absolutely. It was almost like different countries per state. I can it well was imagine. quite amazing.
1: So, and you had a friend come to join you?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, one of my best mates, Chad Freak. Came and joined Sorry, me. Sorry, I have
1: to. I have to say, <laughs> Chad Freak—that's his real surname.
2: That's his real surname, but he's not a freak. <laughs> okay, he's very not a calm. freak by
1: name, but not nature.
2: Yeah, absolutely. He's one of the most calming and soothing people you'll ever ever meet, and he has this aura about him. And he met me in Colorado. He flew in with his bike, and is an incredible cyclist in his own right. Done some amazing things, and joined me for a week in Colorado, crossing the beautiful Rocky Mountains. Mm. And it was just an incredible experience with him because for the first few months, the first five, 6,000 kilometers, I'm not ashamed to say that I had quite an ego about me. You know, I was walking around. I wanted people to know what I was doing and I kind of was doing it for the wrong reasons and Chad picked up on that mentality and he said, well, Jimmy, why are you doing it? Are you doing it for that Instagram photo? Are you doing Mm. it so you can say you've done it or are you doing it for you? And although things didn't change overnight, Chad planted a seed and that mentality of, well, why am I doing this? And it was. It was doing it for me. It was doing it to ride my bike, do what I love, and see these incredible cultures and places around the world. And if it wasn't for that week with Chad, you know, some of the hardships that I faced through Asia, through the remote countries, I probably wouldn't have gotten through. Because after that week, my mentality changed and instead of, Trying to pump myself up, this term of being humble really stuck with me. And I just say, I'm Jimmy. I'm just traveling. Yeah. And with that, I started to see these countries, these cultures, what they really were. See things that I was probably missing before, taking it slower and smelling the roses.
1: Yeah, I imagine that shift in motivation from I'm out doing this and I'm fabulous to. I'm just making my way through the world and open to all sorts of experiences that are coming along. I I can imagine that had a kind of a seismic shift, to be honest. And I imagine talking to people, if you introduce yourself, I'm Jimmy and I'm riding around the world, they might be a bit standoffish. But if it's just, hey, I'm just passing through, then people are more likely to engage in conversation with you.
2: Oh, absolutely. And it always comes out. Eventually, they find out what you're doing, where you're cycling and you know, the people that truly are interested, they're going to then pursue it. And that's when the relationships, the friendships are made. And that simple being humble, letting it come out itself, um, spoke volumes I found. Mm.
1: So uh, I've been to America and I've traveled through the Rockies and it's an incredible place. Then to juxtapose that to say middle America, whereas not a lot going on, how did that difference, affect
2: you? Yeah, it was tough. You know, Kansas was a tough few days. I just left Chad. Chad had left me and Mm -hmm. I just felt a bit lonely. You know, I was there with cornfields, so many (laughs) cornfields and just winds that were coming on my side or headwinds and they were tough. You know, I felt lonely. But as soon as I got out of Kansas into Missouri and the Ozarks, the Appalachians back in the mountains, you know, you got trees, the landscapes again, things changed and I found that that joy in springing my step again.
1: And so, you know, the Appalachian Trail is famous for lots of things, but wildlife is certainly one of them. Did you encounter any wildlife that you hadn't seen before?
2: Absolutely. Some bears. So I saw four bears across America, bald eagles, moose, elk, just these things you see on David Attenborough documentaries. And here I was, a 19-year-old boy, only 50 metres away from it. It was pretty humbling.
1: And certainly different from any animals we have in Australia.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Very different.
1: Yeah. So you get to the East Coast and then you head
2: east? Yeah. I I do head east. So things change. I get to the East Coast and I was faced with a question. I really wanted to visit and explore Central Asia. However, if I flew to Europe and continued eastward, When i arrived in central asia it was going to be the middle of winter Mm. and i'm talking the northern part of the himalayas four or five thousand meters and it's just cold snow it's impassable on a bike so Mm. i was faced with the decision and i flew from washington dc all the way to bishkek which is just below kazakhstan uh to the west of china and the top of kyrgyzstan So I flew in and from Kyrgyzstan, I went south into Tajikistan along the Pamir Highway on the border of Afghanistan for about a 1,000 kilometres into Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, across the Caspian Sea to Azerbaijan, Georgia, Turkey, and then heading westward all the way along or across Europe until I got to Portugal.
1: Okay, so I have to say for most people that would be listening, um... None of us have experience of the the Starn region. Do you want to explain to people what it's like, what it looks like, what the people are like, what the food's like?
0: Yeah,
2: it's incredible. And I felt the same. Before I flew in, I had no idea what to expect. Where do they get their food? What language do they speak? Are they going to be friendly? Mm. And as soon as I landed, you know, all my worries were gone. It's an incredibly beautiful place in so many ways. The landscapes, the mountains, the valleys, the remoteness, the roads are so uh, dirt, full of dirt and hard uh, hard to pass that not many people are out there. Mm. You know, the communities that you go through are nomadic. They live in yurts and they're the happiest people I've ever met. They had smiles like no other. They were inviting me into their homes, their yurts. And they'd sit me down and they'd give me their food. And I say their food because that's what they've grown. Mm. That's the sheep they've uh, raised and here they are willing to give it to me not like there's a supermarket down the road. And the children, they wouldn't have iPhones. They wouldn't go to school. They'd have a donkey. They'd have a stick to play with. It was so simple. And I was faced with this kind of question of, well, hang on. These people with such little are willing to give me so much. And they're the happiest people I've ever met. And compare that to Australia, America, where we have so much. Literally anything we could ask for. But yet there's such a rate of unhappiness, depression, and anxiety. And I kind of started asking, well, where's it gone lost? What's happened? And how can I get the happiness that these guys have? And I started looking into it and visiting these people, going into their homes. And no matter where I went, I realized one thing. It all started with with a smile. Mm. Something so simple, so beautiful. It brought out this positivity And I found that if you smile at someone, instantly they smile back. It's the international language. It is. No matter where you go, the religion, the culture, if you smile at someone, people smile back. Think of a baby. They smile before they even know what a smile is. That's right. And it's something so simple and beautiful, but can have such a great impact. And I saw that these people, it was the way they looked at life with gratitude And it began with a smile. It's beautiful to
1: think that there's this international language of of a smile because I imagine while you're travelling, the spoken language would have fallen short.
2: Oh, absolutely. It was just a big game of charades. Um, Where can I sleep? Where can I eat? And I've picked up the odd word here and there, you know, hello or no, yes. But come to Europe, you're crossing countries every few days, different language, different currency, it's hard enough to keep up. So Google Translate helped, but, you know, a smile got me pretty far and it still gets me pretty far today.
0: We'll take a quick break and we'll be back in a moment with Jimmy. Subscribe to our AG magazine for six months for just $30 and save 33% on the newsstand price. That's three issues of our award-winning magazine delivered to your home for just $30. So don't wait. Go to www.australiangeographic.com.au Forward slash talking Australia for our special offer. That's www.australiangeographic.com.au AU forward slash talking Australia.
1: We are back with our conversation with Jimmy. When you're travelling in those countries where I imagine there aren't supermarkets on every corner or, or fast food joints, how did you how did you source your food? How did you do yeah, that?
2: Yeah, it's always a bit of a game. So you're carrying enough food to get you to the next place. Mm-hmm. And the beautiful part about these towns is is in a supermarket they'll have a central bazaar so it's a market and you go in and you're filled with these vibrant colors the smells the families just come in and they take the tomatoes that they've grown and they come and sell them at this central bazaar and all the community is coming in taking vegetables you're haggling trying to get cheaper prices and it's just an experience of all, all the senses and going to markets around Adelaide just takes me back to those beautiful spots. And I'd fill my bags with muesli, dried fruit. Uh, I could always get eggplants, tomatoes and onions. So I'd make up like a ratatouille mm. and eat that with bread and I'd just live off that for weeks. And then lots of Oreos, chocolate bars, Coca-Cola. It seemed I could get that anywhere in the world.
1: <laughs> if if the smile's a universal language, maybe that is as well.
2: Oh, absolutely. <laughs> it's the world's food. <laughs>
1: so you're in the bazaar and you're haggling you had money to pay or was it was it yeah, a, yeah? it's
2: a full cash culture so there's not an atm to get money out as i flew into kyrgyzstan i had uh quite a lot of us dollars and you'd simply exchange that at borders and uh take the local currency which is quite comedic sometimes due to the exchange rate mm. suddenly you have huge amount of dollar bills that you're trying to put in your packs and it's quite a game to transport
1: yeah vast wads of cash um so cycling through those regions on these um dirt roads mountainous how difficult was that
2: tough you know you mix that with the altitude the remoteness the solitude and then the weather the wind the storms come through and it it can beat you down and there Mm -hmm. were times where i was sat on the road in tears you know i was broken there I was at 19 years old. I hadn't spoken to mum, dad in maybe a week. They didn't know where I was. Hmm. They didn't know if I was alive. I just That's felt so alone. That's a scary thought. That's a really scary thought. It is. Thought. terrifying. Yeah. And the most beautiful thing about cycling is you have those moments, but no one's going to go pedal your bike for you. Yeah. It's up to you. And eventually things will change. The wind flips and it does get better, but it's a matter of fighting those lows if you don't ride those lows, you're not going to get the highs and the beauty that I did get.
1: Mm. So how important then is a sense of, you know, which is what we were talking about with people who have nothing, the sense of gratitude, thankfulness for what they have. Did you feel that as you were he- heading through?
2: Oh, absolutely. You have an apple. You have no idea how good an apple can taste until you've got no other food. Or a simple bowl of two-minute noodles, an instant coffee, Or even a picnic table, a chair to sit on, the simplest things become so beautiful and can make your day. The Mm. smells of the coast. For so long, I was away from a coast and living on Australia. We're filled with that salty smell. And having the rush of the beaches when I got close to them just filled me. Sometimes I'd break down in tears of happiness. Something so simple brought me so much joy.
1: Yeah, and I feel like uh, we, again, we miss that in our everyday. You know, we're too busy rushing around here to there and achieving things that we don't take the moment to enjoy it.
2: Yeah, we take it for granted. And even now being home, I find myself and I catch myself and I say, Jimmy, hold on, just stop, buddy. How cool is this beach? How cool is this chair?
1: Something happened to a bunch of cyclists that you didn't know but it impacted you dramatically?
2: Absolutely. It had a profound impact on me. So six weeks before I flew into Central Asia, On the border of afghanistan six cyclists were attacked in an attack of terror by the islamic state and it happened due to a political law being passed and essentially the locals stood up and they didn't agree with it so they made it uh their job to take a point and uh took it out on six travelers six tourists just like myself Mm. the car drove into the pack of six turned around and came back with knives and four of them were killed Oh my god! six weeks before I flew there. And friends and family, they heard about this on the news and they said, Jimmy, what are you doing, mate? Are you sure? And mm. if I had the choice again, I would say, absolutely, I'm going. Were See, you sure at that point though? I was. Yeah. Yeah, because it can happen anywhere. Mm. It's happened in London. It's happened in Sydney. It just happened to be in a place that ended with a stun. Mm. And as soon as I landed and cycled closer to the area, the locals the people were mourning Mm. it wasn't them it was this rationale group these individuals people were coming up to me and saying i'm sorry and you see i got to the point where it happened and there was a memorial as i got to that memorial i just fell to my knees i broke down started crying for people i've never met before Mm. and i think i was feeling like that because it could so easily have been me why wasn't it me see these people i bet They just wanted to be world travelers like myself. They just wanted to have that love of riding a bike, but yet they couldn't. Mm. And from that, I spoke about Chad planting the seed in America. That moment, it kind of blossomed and I realized my ego was broken down. I was just Jimmy. I was just riding my bike because I never had to. I never had to get up every day and ride 150 kilometers I simply got to. Mm. I got to go to these beautiful places, cycle these roads that maybe these four people didn't, but these four people would love to. Just like the communities on the border of Afghanistan, these people that are born into this country of war, of terror, they're making the most of it. They've got that gratitude, the smiles, the love. They don't care that they've been born into that. They're simply making the most of their life and what they do have. And I kind of looked at it and said, well, what right do I have to pull the pin and complain? Simply find a love for what you're doing and embrace it. See, I never had to, but I got to.
1: Mm. Once you're out of that that region, you head across Europe. Yep. yep. Um And can you just tell us some of the countries you passed through?
2: Yeah. So I was Eastern Europe through Bulgaria, Macedonia, Montenegro, to the Dalmatian coast, and then the French bakeries, the Italian pizzas. <laughs> the Spanish margaritas, uh, all the way to Portugal. So it was a huge culture change comparing it to the deserts of Kazakhstan.
1: Yeah. Um, I imagine that food was incredible fuel for you. Um, I imagine you use so much energy cycling. So oh,
2: Absolutely. See, the best thing about cycle touring is you're always hungry and you're always burning off so much weight. So you can eat all the croissants you want and you're not <laughs> going to get fat, uh, all the pizzas, and it's just... Some days I'd have to stop myself because before I'd know it, I've wasted half the day sat in cafes eating food and I've lost all my hours.
1: I love it. <laughs> a rest day. We'll just call it yeah, a rest of day. Course, yeah, a croissant
2: day. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so traveling as you were, how where did you sleep? How did you how did that work?
2: So I have a gripe, I guess, and I don't like paying for places to stay. Mm. I only had a little tent and I'd always roll in after dark and leave before sunrise. So I kind of made it a bit of a game to see, well, how far can I push it? Where can I sleep at night? And some of my highlights were on the Croatian, the French, Italian coasts, when I'd be sleeping on some of the nicest beaches in front of Nice. And I'd roll in after sunset, lay out my one-man tent and go to bed, leave before the sun rose and the... Hotels behind me they'd be charging four five hundred dollars a night. And there I was for free with a better beach view than they had. It was kind of like I beat the system, a little tick for me.
1: Oh, I love it. What would have happened had you not left before sunrise? Oh,
2: they kick you out. Yeah, I definitely got caught a few times. You get yelled at in French or Italian and you just quickly pack your bike and ride away as fast as you can.
1: How long does it take to pack it all up, set it all up at the end of the day?
2: Uh, pretty quick. Depends yeah. how many people are chasing you. <laughs>
1: Okay, so we get to the coast and then you head where? Where do you go yeah, after that? Yeah,
2: so across Europe, you know, I'm back in that first world society and I spoke about that love, kindness, compassion, happiness. I was kind of missing it, you know. The people in Europe were very friendly but not to the level that I found in Asia. Mm. So I got to Portugal, got to Lisbon and I said, that's it, I'm going back to Asia. So I packed up my bike again and I flew into New Delhi in India. And from India, I went across Nepal, back into India and Manipur, down to Myanmar, to Thailand, Laos, Vietnam, Cambodia, all the way down through Malaysia to Indonesia and Jakarta. So, as soon as I crossed the border out of India, I was into the foothills of the Himalayas. I got into the remote roads and I was finding that love, happiness that I saw through Central Asia. I was on roads that people don't go, going through communities where tourism isn't and I stayed I made it my mission to stay off the main tracks I wanted to be remote in the foothills get the views the culture the true Nepal
1: did you do that throughout your journey try to stay off the main roads and, and yeah absolutely take the road less traveled.
2: so I definitely found that countries they create these tourist hubs uh and that's how they want people to see their country mm-hmm. but then you get out of those places and that's when you see the true culture what the country truly is and I made it my mission to find the true places. I'm not interested in seeing the beautiful beaches of Thailand. I want to see the rice fields. Mm. I want to see where the farmers work, where they grow their crops, the homes they live in. I want to see what these countries truly are, and, and I did.
1: Did you get invited in often?
2: All the time. I had some incredible encounters. One in Nepal that that uh, is a moment that will stand out with me forever. I was cycling along up this dirt road, the foothills of the Himalayas places where tourists don't go Mm. and it was a full moon sky the sun had just set the stars were out not a cloud in the sky and I laid out my little one-man tent and laid it over a track not knowing it was a track leading to somebody's home anyway nine or ten at night a torch started shining on my tent and I realized oh, I better go out and make sure they're friendly Yeah. yeah as I got out of my tent I can only imagine that this person had hardly seen a tourist, let alone someone coming out of this green little bivy sack. So I imagine it looked like a little caterpillar emerging from a cocoon. As I came out of this tent, this elderly woman, she would have been 70 or 80, just started to scream. She shrieked. Oh. And I quickly said, Namaste, namaste, showed her my bike, showed her I was a tourist. And then it went silent. And under this full moon sky with the stars, she just started to laugh. And there we were she didn't speak english i didn't speak nepalese but we were just laughing under this full moon sky in remote nepal and that moment passed and she went back to her home and then as dawn came she brought her family her brothers her sons it was about eight or ten of them they all packed up my tent took my bike and they took me back to their home they gave me tea gave me biscuits and just sent me on my way simply wanted to make sure i was okay And I could keep going. As I got into Indonesia, my bike started to fall apart. Things were breaking. There weren't really any bike shops. And I passed the 365 day mark. You know, I'd been on the road a year. My initial plan was only nine months, but I kept getting excited and going longer ways. And eventually, there was 12 months since I'd been home. And I sort of made the decision that, well, my bike's starting to break. I'm tired. I need a good wash. Maybe it's time I go back to (laughs) Perth. So I did, and I flew home.
1: I I have to ask, what constitutes a ride around the world? Is it the number of kilometres you do? Is it the places you have to tick off? How does it work?
2: Yeah, look, so Guinness World Record, uh, have some set rules for speed records. You know, they've got X amount of distance. Um, you have to go through two antipodal points, which are two spots opposite each other in the globe, mm-hmm. which I did go through. That was Auckland, New Zealand, and Madrid in Spain. But to me, those rules can be um, not totally true. You know, you can do follow the rules, but I don't believe you cycle around the world. I think it's just up to you. You know, mm. you're riding the bike because you love to ride your bike. Mm. And I think at the end of the day, if you come home and look at a map and you've got a line going around the world, you've cycled around the world. If you haven't, cool. You can stay cycled around the world. It's up to you. Like, this is my journey. You do your journey. I'm not here to have a debate over who's done it better. Yeah, no, yeah, you yeah. do you. This
1: is your story. Your journey. Exactly. Yeah. Um For the bike heads out there, we probably should talk about your bike and the gear that you had along the way. I can't imagine you wanted to carry very much considering, you know, the journey. What was was your setup like?
2: Absolutely. So I rode a Curve Cycling GXR. So they're a Melbourne brand that specialise in titanium, steel, carbon rims and all up my bike weighed about 28 kilos and her name was Grace. See, Grace was my best friend for 13 months. I shed literal blood sweat and tears you know she was my best friend we went through so much together and it took me to these incredible places and the brand curve you know steve adam ryan and jesse they backed me 100 percent. they were sending parts all over the world setting me up with bike shops you know if it wasn't for them it would have been a long walk you know they built the bike i was on and then the bags i went for a little bit uh, less traditional setup, so no panniers. I had the bike packing, um, smaller bags, and basically a couple of shirts, one pair of undies, a tent. Okay, sorry, one pair mat. of undies?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I had one
2: pair of undies that went over 20,000 kilometers. Do you still um, have those undies? I do, they're back home, still together. <laughs> so it comes back to the, the people I met, you know, they have such little and they're so happy. So I thought, well, I don't need much you know and i love the idea that everything i owned for 13 months was within arm's reach i didn't need anything more i didn't need anything less everything i owned had a purpose how
1: does that how do you reconcile that now being back where you have so much more
2: well it's it's quite confronting you know mm-hmm. you go to your cupboard your drawers and suddenly you're choosing which shirt to wear and it's like hold on i just want my one shirt i want this simple life back and even conversing with people, you start to realize it's fast fashion and it's really hard to get my head around. You know, what? why can't we always wear one shirt?
1: <laughs> I mean, I think maybe I'd like two shirts maybe yeah. one, <laughs> every other day, but, yeah. but it certainly makes sense and would be much better for the environment. So we're in Perth and then you've got the long stretch of the Nullarbor awaiting you. How did yeah. that
2: go? Oh, it was incredible. You know, people say, oh, 2,800 kilometers, that's going to be a slog. It's boring out there. But it wasn't. See, everything I'd been through, I'd been over 35,000 kilometers. I landed in Perth and that final 10, 11 days was a celebration. Mm. I got to just cruise along and be proud of what I've achieved, knowing that in just over a week, I'd be home. I'd be back where it all began with friends, with family, with the people I loved, back in the comfort of a bed. And this huge mission would be done.
1: Coming home, how did it feel to land back on Australian soil? Oh,
2: it was an emotional uh, explosion. You know, I hadn't been in an English-speaking country for seven, eight months, mm. and suddenly I'm buying coffees in English. People are asking me how I'm going. I just had this ear-to-ear smile and this little chuckle with this giggle. I was able to phone all my friends on a normal number. <laughs> it was just incredible. Everything was like i left it, but beautiful. See, I started to see more than I did when, when I left. I speak about the beaches. I say, oh, how beautiful are these beaches? Mm. How cool is this picnic table? Things that I probably didn't think about when I was in Australia last.
1: So, what are you doing now to fill your days?
2: Yeah, all sorts. A lot of time on my bike still. I'm working as an outdoor guide for a number of schools around South Australia. But, probably the thing I'm loving the most is since being home, I've developed this package about a 60 minute talk on my journey. So, it's not just me telling where I've been and what I've done but it's the story of who I've become, Mm -hmm. the resilience, the hardships, the lows. And I've taken it to grade 9, 10, 11, 12 students, corporate organizations, and it has a profound impact. You see, I was 18 when I took this journey on, and these year 12s that's them right now. They're about to finish exams, and I don't finish it and say, well, you need to go and buy a bike and cycle around the world because that's my dream. But I do know in one way or another, we all have our own world to cycle. And I know that if I'm 18 years old, I can do this. Well, what could your world look like? You know, what world could you cycle?
1: Thank you so much, Jimmy. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. No,
2: thank you. I've loved it.
1: That's it for today's episode of Talking Australia with Jimmy Ashby. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to reach out. Write us an email, podcast at australiangeographic.com or find us on Instagram at Australian Geographic and if you go to australiangeographic.com.au slash talking australia you'll find a special subscription offer so don't wait go to australiangeographic.com.au slash talking australia also make sure to subscribe to the podcast on itunes spotify or wherever you get your podcast from thanks for listening and hear you next time